I didn't plan to preach on the first two readings from Genesis and from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, but listening to them at the liturgy, I just thought I'd say a couple of things. Uh, many years ago, when I was in seminary, there was a book published by a Roman Catholic priest named George Tavard. He taught at uh, one of the Methodist seminaries in Texas. And he wrote a book called Woman, Women in Christian Tradition. And the opening chapter was about uh, Adam and Eve and the creation stories. And uh, it was dealing with the question uh, that is still around in uh, many parts of Christianity, and that is that women are, at, are the cause of the fall, right? That uh, Eve tempted Adam to eat the fruit of the, from the forbidden tree, and it's been downhill ever since. So Tavard talks about all that, and he uses all the ancient language stuff and talks about it in great depth. But the line that I remember from the book that was the best from this chapter was, it would be a pusillanimous tempter indeed who would tempt the weakest link in the chain. <laughs> so just keep that on ice, and you might be able to use it. Paul, uh, writing in Romans, is often very difficult to understand. You have to read it carefully, but here's what this passage means and is all about. For Paul, he's, he's going in his tradition, the Jewish tradition, to the fall, Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, and he's saying, uh, we're, Adam has uh, produced this circumstance for us of um, being fallen in this way. And now we have a new Adam in Jesus. So the old Adam is being replaced by the new Adam who has come and redeemed us from the consequences of this. There are two views about the fall in Christianity, certainly Western Christianity. Uh, the Catholic view, and many Anglicans believe this, that in the Garden of Eden what occurred was that human beings lost their supernatural endowment. But that they were able still to know the good. In Reformed Christianity, Protestant Christianity, the belief is that in the Garden of Eden, we blew it. There's no way back. It's over. And it is only by God's gracious action reaching in that we're saved. And of course the difference between those two things is that if you and I are able to know the good, then it's possible to cooperate with God uh, for his purposes here, not somewhere else. Or wait around for something to happen from somewhere else. That we're part of the economy of salvation. Ash Wednesday, last Wednesday, began the season of Lent. It's six weeks long, and it is a period of self-examination and reflection. I've mentioned this more than once, that in the last 50 years, with the liturgical renewal of the church's life, there has been a re-emphasis on the original, if that's the right way to say it, meaning of the season of Lent as a pre preparation for Easter, 
by connecting it to the sacrament of baptism. And in the primitive church, this preparatory season's primary focus was on those who were preparing to be baptized. In the church of the first three or four centuries, the normative age for baptism was adulthood. And in many places, preparation for baptism lasted three years. And so after you had completed the catechumenate, it was called, then the preparatory season before Easter was an intensification of your preparation to be baptized on Easter, the only time in the year when anybody was baptized. And when Constantine declared Christianity to be the legal religion of the Roman Empire, all the adults got baptized pretty quick. So now we were baptizing mainly infants and young children, and we were also contending with the issues around what, does some, what do we do when we're baptized but we lapse? How do we reconnect with the promises of God? And so what are the processes engaged in a preparatory season for some kind of uh, turnaround, some kind of repentance and reflection? And how do we understand the meaning of that? It was aided and abetted by the movement of the liturgy in Western Christianity from Greek into Latin. And now the Bible gets translated from Greek into Latin by St. Jerome. And so for 1,100 years, that's the Bible we read, the Latin Bible. And in the Latin Bible, when you hear John the Baptist say, repent, it's penitentium agite, do penance. So it would be natural to say, well, in the Lenten disciplines and the things that we do, I guess we're being urged in the biblical witness to undertake hair-raising austerities for six weeks, among other things. And then we go to 1517 and Martin Luther picks up the Greek New Testament again and he reads metanoiete, repent, turn around, look in a different direction for happiness. Not just do penance, although these two things are not mutually exclusive. But what we need to do now is put them back together and realize that the source of all this is the template, that, or the template we use is the baptismal covenant that we lay on our own spiritual development, growth, and maturity. And the season of Lent is a time when we focus on those things. We will, for the next few weeks, be talking more about repentance, about reconciliation, about the fact that you and I are to be reconcilers in big and small ways in our lives and in our public action, and also that we're to uh, cultivate and uh, reaffirm godly motives in our life, that we don't operate as often as we might have uh, with corrupt motives, and that we have godly motives as we, we do this. Before I begin talking about the temptation of Jesus in the desert, I want to read something to you in terms of how this might look. 
about what do we mean when we're keeping Lent or what the driving forces may be in our life to sort of compel uh, some change of thinking about what we're doing. This is an article called Living Lent by Barbara Cawthorn Crafton, who is a, an Episcopal priest uh, from the East. I think one of her last uh, positions was as the interim uh, rector of St. James Church in Florence. Not a bad, not bad duty. <laughs> so she's written an article here called Living Lent. So indulge me, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but part of it. We didn't even know what moderation was, what it felt like. We, ju- we didn't just work, we inhaled our jobs, sucked them in, became them, stayed late, brought back work home. It was never enough, though, no matter how much time we put in. We didn't just eat. We stuffed ourselves. We had gained only three pounds since the previous year. We told ourselves three pounds is not a lot, but we had gained about that much in each of the 25 years since high school. We didn't do the math. We redid living rooms in which the furniture was not worn out. We threw away clothing that was merely out of style. We felt that it was important to be good to ourselves and that this meant that it was dangerous to tell ourselves no about anything ever. Repression of one's desires was an unhealthy thing. I work hard, we told ourselves. I deserve a little treat. We treated ourselves every day. And if it was dangerous for us to want and not have, it was even more so for our children. They must never know what it is to want something and not have it immediately. It will make them bitter, we told ourselves, so we anticipated their needs and desires. We got them both the doll and the bike. If their grades were good, we got them their own telephones. We looked for others whose lives were similarly overstuffed. We found them. This is just the way it is, we said to one another on the train, in the restaurant. This is modern life. Maybe some people have time to measure things out by teaspoonfuls. Our contempt, our voices dripped contempt for those who had such time. We felt oddly defensive, though. No one had accused us of anything. But not me, not anyone who has a life. I have a life. I work hard. I play hard. When did the collision between our appetites and the needs of our souls happen? Was there a heart attack? Did we get laid off from work, one of the thousands certified as extraneous? Did a beloved child become a bored stranger, a marriage fall silent and cold, or by some exquisite working of God's grace, did we just find the courage to look the truth in the eye and for once did not blink? How did we come to know that we were dying a slow and unacknowledged death and that the only way back to life was to set all our packages down 
and begin again carrying with us only what we really needed. We travail, we are heavily laden. Refresh us, O homeless, jobless, possessionless Savior. You came naked, and naked you go, and so it is for us. So it is for all of us. Does it sound familiar? This stuff is easy to say and hard to do, isn't it? But that's the nexus for the Lenten exercises. Jesus is in the wilderness today. I need to say something to you about the biblical understanding of what it means when we talk about the wilderness. For the biblical writers and for the people in the thought world of the time of the writing of the Bible, the desert had two meanings. One was the physical geographical location of the desert. And the other was the internal desert that each one of us have, a place of purification. And so after his baptism, Jesus goes into the desert and he there is tempted. By the way, the word Satan does not mean the devil. Satan is a word that means in the, in the ancient languages, advocate. So notice that in the opening of Matthew's gospel, we have the tempter. And elsewhere we, hit, we say the devil because people have left it in, uh, not to get some people all upset that we don't think about the devil anymore. So we need to have <laughs> devil in there once in a while. So you know, oh yes, I guess that's, that's what it is. But remember, C.S. Lewis said in the screw tape letters that the devil has got you right where he wants you if you keep thinking of the devil with a pointed tail and horns in a red suit. Because these things operate more like what Barbara Crafton was talking about. Jesus is tempted around the three energy centers you hear me talk about all the time from Father Thomas Keating. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. Everybody uh, has to struggle with these on a regular basis. Keating says about the temptation of Jesus in the desert, Jesus redeemed us from the consequence of our emotional programs for happiness by experiencing them himself. As a human being, he passed through the pre-rational stages of developing human consciousness, immersion in matter, the immersion of a body self, and the development of conformity consciousness over-identification over with one's family, nation, ethnic group, and religion. He had to deal with the particular but limited values of each level of human development from infancy to the age of reason without, of course, ever ratifying with his will their illusory projects for happiness. Jesus appears in the desert as the representative of the human race he bears within himself the experience of the human predicament in its raw intensity. You know, the first three centuries of Christianity, uh, all the writing about who Jesus was, 
If he was God, if he was divine, how was he God? How was he divine? If he was human, was a human being, how was he human? What was the relationship between his humanity and divinity? How did we understand what that meant? So, for example, the fathers of the church would write essays on things like, did Jesus go through a moral development? Did he have to learn, get up and brush your teeth? Some people would say, oh, no, he was, he's God. He doesn't have to go through a moral development. He knew it all. And the conclusion was, the great consensus was, yes, he did. He was a human being. He had to go through a human development just like you and me. You know, just like us. And so by virtue of that, he has been every way, everywhere that we have been. The three energy centers... Security and survival, turn these stones into bread. Affection and esteem, you're on the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down, all the angels are going to protect you because of who you are. You won't dash your foot against a stone. Affection and esteem. And then on a big high place where he looks at all the kingdoms of the world and is told these could be all his if he lived and operated with corrupt motives. Power and control. And he bests these things by virtue of who he is. And by extension, now we're the beneficiaries of what that means. So this week, think about your emotional programs for happiness. Know that the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is testimony to the fact that he has been everywhere that we have been and has brought redemption out of what appeared to be a destiny of being overwhelmed by bad energy and self-centered fear. Ask God to help you keep a holy Lent. What Paul said in Romans today towards the end is important. No one who believes in him will be put to shame, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen.